Chapter Six of A Bullet for Cinderella by John D. MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Saturday morning was dreary, with damp winds, low scudding clouds, lights on in the stores. I couldn't get a better line on the Cooper girl until the administration office at the high school opened on Monday. The few leads had faded away into nothing. I wondered what I would do with the day. After buying some blades and some toothpaste, I drove around for a while and finally faced the fact that I was trying to think of a good excuse to see Ruth Stam. I went without an excuse. She was in the reception area at the animal hospital. She gave me a quick, warm smile as I walked in. A woman sat holding a small, shivering dog, waiting her turn. There was a boy with a Siamese cat on a leash. The cat, dainty and arrogant, purposefully ignored the shivering dog. Ruth, smiling, asked in a low voice, "'More questions?' "'No questions, just general depression.' "'Wrong kind of hospital, Tal.' "'But the right kind of personnel. "'Need some kind of therapy?' "'Something like that.' She looked at her watch. "'Come back at twelve. We close at noon on Saturday. I'll feed you, and we'll cook up something to do.' The day was not as dreary when I drove away. I returned at twelve, I went up to the house with her, and the three of us ate in the big kitchen. Dr. Buck Stam was a skilled storyteller. Apparently every misfortune that could happen to a veterinary had happened to him. He reviled his profession and his own stupidity in getting into it in the first place. After a cigar he went off to make farm calls. I helped Ruth with a few dishes. How about a plain old tour of the surrounding country? she suggested. There are parts that are very nice. Then dinner tonight and a movie or something? Sold. It's Saturday night. She changed to slacks and a tweed jacket over a yellow sweater, and we took my car. She gave me the directions. We took small back roads. It was pretty country with rolling hills and spines of rock that stuck out of the hills. In the city the day had been gloomy. Out in the country it was no better, but the breeze seemed moist with spring. The new leaves were a pale green. She sat slouched in the seat with one knee up against the glove compartment, and pointed out the farms, told me about the people, told me about the history of the area. At her suggestion I took a back road that led to a place called Highland Lake. She told me when to slow down. When we came to a dirt road we turned right. A mile down the slippery, muddy road was a sign that said, B. Stam. I went cautiously down an overgrown drive through the woods until we came to a small cabin with a big porch overlooking a small lake less than a mile long and half as wide. I could see other cabins in the trees along the lake shore. We went on to the cabin porch and sat on the railing and smoked and talked and watched the quick winds furrow the lake surface. We don't get up here as much as we used to when Mother was alive. Dad talks about selling it, but I don't think he will. He hunts up here in the fall. It's only eighteen miles from town, the shortest way. It's pretty primitive, but, you know, Tal, this would be a good place to write. I felt again a quick, sharp pang of guilt. Her enthusiasm grew. Nobody is using it. There's no electricity, but there are oil lamps and a Coleman lantern. There's plenty of wood in the shed, and one of those little gasoline stoves. 
The bunks are comfortable, and there's lots of blankets. It would save paying rent. I know Dad wouldn't mind a bit. Thanks, Ruth, but really I couldn't. Why not? It's only a half hour to town. I don't think I'll be here long enough to make it worthwhile moving in. Well, then, she said, okay. And I thought I detected some disappointment in her tone. I'd like you to see it, anyhow. The key was hidden on one of the roof supports near the door. We went inside. It was bare, but it looked clean and comfortable. There were fish rods on a wall rack and a big stone fireplace. It's nice, I said. I've always loved it. I'd make a wild row if Dad ever tried to sell it. The first time I came up here they had to bring playpen and high chair. I'd learned to swim here. I broke my collarbone falling out of one of those top bunks in there. She smiled at me. We were standing quite close together. There was something both warm and wistful about her smile. There was a long silence in the room. I could hear birds and a far-off drone of an outboard motor. Our eyes locked once more, and her smile faded as her mouth softened. There was a heaviness about her eyes, a look almost of drowsiness. We took a half-step toward each other, and she came neatly, graciously into my arms, as though it were an act we had performed many times. The kiss was gentle at first, and then fierce and hungry. As she strained upward against me, my hands felt the long smoothness of her back, and her arm was crooked hard around my neck. We wavered in dizzy balance, and I sidestepped quickly to catch our balance, and we parted awkwardly, shy as children. Tell, she said, tell, I... Her voice was throaty and unfocused. I know, I said, I know. She turned away abruptly and walked slowly to the window and looked out across the lake. I followed her and put my hands lightly on her shoulders. I felt shamed by all this, shamed by my lies and afraid of what would happen when she found out about me. I felt new tension in her body and she leaned closer to the window and seemed to peer more intently. What's the matter? Look, isn't that some kind of animal over there, directly across? That was the warden camp before George sold it, the one with the green roof. Now look just to the right of the porch. I looked and saw something bulky, partially screened by brush. It looked as if it could be a bear. She brushed by me and came back with a pair of binoculars. She focused them and said, It's a man. Here, you look. I adjusted them to my eyes. The man was getting to his feet. He was a big man in a brown suit. He was hatless, and his hair was thin on top, and he had a wide, hard-looking face. It was the man who had driven by Fitz and me in the blue sedan, the man who had come into the bar at the inn. He brushed the knees of his brown suit and dusted his hands together. He bent over and picked up what looked to be a long dowel or a piece of reinforcing rod. "'Let me look,' she said, and took the binoculars again. "'I know the people who bought the camp from George. That isn't the man.' Maybe he's a service man of some kind. I don't think so. I know most of them. Now he's going up on the porch. He's trying the door. Hey, he broke a window next to the door. Now he's getting it up. Now he's stepping in over the sill. She turned to me, her eyes wide. How about that? Tal, he's a thief. We'd better go over there. Anything you say, but how about the law? Wait a minute. 
She hurried into the bedroom. She came back with a twenty-two target pistol and a box of shells. It was a long-barreled automatic. She thumbed the clip out and loaded it expertly, snapped the clip back in, and handed me the gun. You'll be more impressive with it than I would. Come on. There was no road that led directly around the lake. We had to go about four miles out of our way to get to the road on the other side of the lake. A dark blue sedan was parked at the head of the driveway, facing out. There wasn't room to drive by. I parked, and we went down the trail toward the camp. I turned and motioned her to stay back. I went ahead, but I heard her right behind me. The man came walking around the corner of the camp, frowning. He stopped short when he saw me, his eyes flicking toward the gun and then toward Ruth. "'Why did you break into that camp?' Ruth demanded angrily. "'Take it easy, lady. Put the gun away, friend.' "'Answer the question,' I said, keeping the gun on him. He acted so unimpressed that I felt ridiculous holding the gun. I'm a licensed private investigator, friend. Don't put any hole in me while I'm getting my wallet. I'll show you. He took the wallet out. He took out a card encased in plastic and nipped it toward us. Ruth picked it up. It had his picture and a thumbprint and two official-looking countersignatures, and it said that he was licensed by the state of Illinois. His name was Milton D. Grassman. The card said he was forty-one years old, six foot one, and weighed two hundred and five. "'But what are you investigating?' Ruth asked. He smiled. "'Just investigating. And who are you, lady? Maybe you're trespassing.' His smile was half good humor, half contempt. "'You're working for Rose Fulton, aren't you?' I asked. The smile was gone instantly. He didn't seem to move or breathe. I had the impression that a very good mind behind that flat, tough face was working rapidly. "'I'm afraid I don't know the name,' he said, but he had waited too long. "'Who are you, friend?' "'We're going to report this to the police,' Ruth said. "'Go ahead, lady. Be a good citizen. Give them the word.' "'Come on, Tal,' she said. We went back up the trail. When we got into the car, I looked back and saw him standing by his car, watching us. He didn't take his eyes off us while he lit a cigarette and shook the match out. Ruth was oddly silent as I drove back toward the Stam camp. Finally I said, What's the matter? I don't know. At first I thought you lied to me. Then I believed you. Now I don't know. How come? You know what I'm thinking? You asked him about a Rose Fulton. It shocked him when you asked him that. Anyone could see that. Eloise Warden ran away with a man named Fulton. What would make you think to ask that Mr. Grassman that question? She turned to face me. What are you doing in Hilston, Tal? If that's your name. I told you what I'm doing. Why did you ask that man that question? The police picked me up last night. They had word that Rose Fulton had hired another man to come here. This will be the third. They thought I was that man. They interrogated me, and then they let me go, so I guessed that maybe he was the man. We got out of the car. She was still looking at me oddly. Tal, if you're here to write up Timmy, I think you would have told me that before now. It's a cute and interesting little story if you were here just to write up Timmy, and I can't believe that you could have forgotten it. I just didn't think of telling it. 
That's no good, Tal. I know it isn't. What's wrong? Is it something you can't tell me? Look, Ruth, I... There is another reason why I came. I lied to you. I don't want to tell you why I came here. I'd rather not. But it has something to do with Timmy. That's right. He is dead, isn't he? He is dead. But how can I know when you're lying and when you're not? I guess you can't, I said helplessly. She locked the camp and on the way back told me which turns to take. She had nothing else to say. I drove into her place. She opened the door quickly to get out. Wait a minute, Ruth. Her right foot was on the ground. She sat on the corner of the seat and turned and looked back at me. Yes? I'm sorry about this. You've made me feel like a fool. I talked a lot to you. I believed you, and so I told you things I've never told anybody, just to help you when you had no intention of riding up to me. I tell you I'm sorry. That doesn't do very much good. But I'll give you this much benefit of the doubt, Tal. Look right at me and tell me that you have no reason to be ashamed of why you came here. I looked into the gray eyes, and like grass when I hesitated too long. She slammed the car door and went to the house without looking back. Saturday night was no longer a nice thing to think about. Somehow, through impulsiveness and through awkwardness, I had trapped myself. I felt as if I had lost a great deal more than a Saturday night date. She was not a girl you could lie to. She was not a girl you would want to lie to. My little cover story now seemed soiled and dingy. I drove into town. I started my drinking at the Hilston Inn. Before I left the inn, I cashed two traveler's checks. I hit a great many bars. It was Saturday night. The city seemed alive. I can remember seeing the dwarf bartender. There was a woman I bought drinks for. At one time I was in a men's room and four of us were singing. The door was locked and somebody was pounding on it. We were making fine music. I was sick in a hedge and I couldn't find my car. I wandered a long time before I found it. I don't know what time it was. It was late. I had to keep one eye closed as I drove cautiously out to the motel. Otherwise, the center line was double. I parked the car in front of my motel room and went unwashed to bed. Sunday was a replica, a sodden day in town, a drunken day. It was eleven when I got up on Monday morning. A half-dozen glasses of water made me feel bloated, but didn't quench my thirst. My head pounded in a dull, ragged rhythm. I shaved slowly, painfully. The shower made me feel a little better. I decided that it was time to go. Time to leave this place. I didn't know where I would head for, any place, any kind of a job, some kind of manual labor, get too bush to think. I packed my two bags. I left them inside the door and went out to unlock the trunk. All the transient cars were gone. A big dog stood with his feet against the side of my car, looking in the side window. The cold, thin, bird-like woman was carrying sheets and towels out of one of the other rooms and dumping them into a hamper on wheels. The dog jumped back as I walked out. He stood twenty feet away and whined in a funny way. I made as though to throw gravel at him, and he went farther back. I don't know what attracted him to my car. I happened to glance inside as I was heading to unlock the trunk. I stopped and looked for a long time. It seemed an effort to take my eyes away. 
A big body was on the floor in the back, legs bent, head tilted sideways. It was Milton Grassman. He still wore the brown suit. The knees showed traces of pale, dried mud. The forehead, in the area where the thin hairline had started, was broken jelly, an ugly, sickening depression. No man could have lived more than a moment with a wound like that. I realized the woman was calling to me in her thin voice. I turned and said, What? I said, Are you staying another day? Yes, yes, I'm staying another day. She went into another room. She was working her way toward mine. I hurried back in. I put one bag in the closet, opened the other one, put my toilet articles back in the bathroom. I slammed the door and went out. The dog was standing by the car again, whining. I got behind the wheel and drove out of there. I drove away from town. I didn't want to be stopped by a traffic light where anybody could look down into the back of the car. I remembered an old tarp in the back. I pulled off onto the shoulder and got the tarp. I waited while traffic went by and then spread the tarp over Grassman. I tried not to look at him while I did it, but I couldn't help seeing his face. The slackness of death had ironed everything out of it, all expression. I drove on aimlessly and then stormed again on the shoulder of the highway. I wanted to be able to think. I could feel the dreadful presence of the body behind me. My brain felt frozen, numbed, useless. It did no good to wonder when the body had been put there. I couldn't even remember the places where I had parked. Why had it been put in my car? Somebody wanted to get rid of it. Someone wanted to divert suspicion from himself. From the look of the wound, murder had been violent and unplanned. One tremendous skull-smashing blow. It was inevitable that I should begin to think of fits. Of the people I knew in Hilston, he was the one capable of murder, and both quick and brutal enough to have killed a man like Grassman. From what I had seen of him, Grassman looked tough and capable. But why would Fitz want to implicate me? The answer was quick and chilling. It meant that he had traced the right Cindy, the Cindy who would know where Timmy had buried the money. He might already have the money. The immediate problem was to get rid of the body. It should be a place where there would be no witness, no one to remember having seen my car. I couldn't go to the police. I was here before, unemployed, no permanent address, a criminal record, according to your definition. It so happens that I have a body in my car. It got in there somehow last night. Was I drunk? Brother, you can find a dozen witnesses to how drunk I was. I was a slobbering mess, the worst I've ever been in my life worse even than the night before. There would be no glimmer of understanding in the cold, official eyes of Lieutenant Prine. A state road patrol car passed me going slowly. The trooper behind the wheel stared curiously at me as I sat there. He stopped and backed up. Maybe they were already looking for me. He leaned across the empty seat and said, "'What's the trouble?' "'Nothing. I, I mean I was overheating. I thought I'd let it cool off. Is it far to a gas station? Mile or so. It'll cool off quicker if you open the hood. Will it? Thanks. And get it a little farther off the road, Doc. He went on. I moved the car farther off the road. I opened the hood. I wondered if he would be bothered by the way I had acted and come back to check my license and look the car over. I wondered if I should make a U-turn and get as far away from him as I could. 
but it made some sense to risk the outside chance of his coming back and stay right here until I could plan what to do with the body. The noon sun was warm. There was a subtle, sour odor in the car that sickened me. A dark red tractor moved back and forth across the distant hillside. Drainage water bubbled in the ditch beside the shoulder. A truck went by at high speed, the blast of its passage shaking my car. I found that a two-day drunk gives your mind a flavor of unreliability. Memory is shaky, and dreams become mixed with reality. I began to wonder if I had imagined the body. When there was no traffic, I looked into the back seat again. The tarp was there. The body was covered. It was not covered very well. I saw a thick ankle, a dark green sock, a brown scuffed shoe cracked across the instep, with laces tied in a double knot, the way my mother used to tie my shoe laces when I was very small, to keep them from coming untied. It made Grassman more believable as a person, as the person who had sat on the edge of a bed and tied those laces, and then had gone out and become a body, and the laces would eventually be untied by someone else somebody with a professional coolness and an unthinking competence. I whirled around when I heard traffic coming. When the road was clear again, I pulled the tarp to cover the ankle and shoe, but it pulled clear of his head, and my stomach spasmed, and I could not look at him. After a while I fixed the tarp properly. I got out of the car. I did not want to look in again, but I found myself staring in at the side window. I had to get rid of it somewhere. I had to get rid of it soon. The very nearness of the body kept me from thinking clearly. The lake? I could find it again. But I could be seen there as readily as Ruth saw Grassman. I could hunt for obscure roads at random and dump the body out when I came to what seemed to be a good place. But the body was going to be found, and it was going to be identified, and it was going to be in the paper with the right name. And Ruth was going to remember the odd question I had asked the man, and remember his tell-tale response to that question. The minutes were ticking by, and I was getting nowhere. Fitzmartin's trap was wide and deep, lined with sharp stakes. I wished I could put the body back on his doorstep, give it right back to him, let him sweat. At first glance the idea seemed absurd, but the more I thought about it, the better it seemed. I would be seen driving into the yard, but if questioned I could say I was going to see Fitzmartin. And I would see Fitzmartin. I would leave the body in the yard somewhere between the piles of stacked lumber. No, that would be no good. No man would be so stupid as to kill another man and leave the body at the place where he worked. Yet if some attempt was made to conceal the body, then they would assume it was a temporary hiding place until Fitzmartin could think of another. On the other hand, would any man be so stupid as to kill another man and then drive the body to the police station in his car and claim he didn't do it? Maybe that was my best out. Maybe that was the best innocent reaction. My hands were icy cold and sweaty. They left wet marks where I touched the steering wheel. I was trying to think of every alternative, every possible plan of action. I could go back and check out and head west and try to leave the body where it would never be found, by a shovel, dig a desert grave. I could put the body in the seat beside me and run into something. My ideas were getting worse instead of better. The very presence of the body made thinking as laborious as trying to run through waist-deep water. I did not want to panic, but I knew I had to get rid of it as soon as possible, and I could not see myself going to prine for tender mercy. There had been a reason why Grassman had been killed. 
Hiding the body would give me a grace period. I would have to assume it would be traced to me eventually. By the time they caught up with me, I would have to know why he had been killed. Knowing why would mean knowing who. I knew it was Fitz. Why did Fitz kill Grassman? I shut the hood and started the car and drove. I was five miles from the court and about nine miles from town when I found a promising-looking road that turned left. It was potholed asphalt, ravaged by winter, torn by tractor lugs. It climbed mild hills and dipped into forgotten valleys. It came out of a heavy wooded area, and ahead on the left, set back well from the road, I saw a tall stone chimney where a house had burned long ago. The weathered gray barn had half collapsed. It looked like a great gray animal with a broken back, its hind legs dragging. The road was empty. I turned in where the farm road had once been. Small trees bent over under my front bumper, dragged along the underside of the car, and half rose again behind me. I circled the foundation of the house and parked behind the barn near a wild tangle of berry bushes. I could not be seen from the road. I had to risk being seen from distant hillsides. It seemed very quiet with the motor off. A crow went over, hoarse and derisive. I opened the rear door of the car. I made myself grasp his heavy ankles. Rigor had begun to set in. It took all my strength to pull the bulky body free of the cramped space between the back seat and the back of the front seat. It came free suddenly, thudding to the ground. I released the ankles and staggered back. There had been something under the body. Friction had pulled it toward me. It rested on the car floor, half in and half out of the car, a short, bright length of galvanized pipe with a dark brown smear at one end. I left the body there and went to see where I would put it. There was a great splintered hole in the back of the barn. I stepped up and through the hole. The floor felt solid. Daylight came brightly through the holes in the roof. I went back to the body again. It was not hard to drag it to the hole, but getting it inside the barn was difficult. I had to lift it about three feet. I puzzled over how to do it. Finally, I turned him around and propped him up in a sitting position, his back to the hole. I climbed up over him, then reached down and got his wrists. I pulled him up over the edge and then dragged him back into the darkness. There was some hay on the floor, musty and matted. I covered the body with it. I went out and got the piece of pipe, using a dry leaf to pick it up. I dropped it into the hay that covered the body. I went back out into the sunlight. I wondered about Grassman. I wondered what compulsion had made him choose his line of work dirty, monotonous, sometimes dangerous work. From the look of the man, as he had talked to us up at the lake, I guessed that he had had no idea it would end like this. He had looked tough and confident. This body under the straw was a far cry from the fictional private eyes, the smart ones, and the suave ones, and the gamey ones. His story had ended. He would not sit up, brush the straw out of his eyes, and reach for either blonde or bottle. Leaving him there had about it the faint flavor of burial, as though solemn words should be said. I inspected the car. The floor rug was stained and spotted in four places. I couldn't see any on the seat or on the insides of the doors. I took the floor rug out and rolled it up. I put it beside me in the front seat. I sat and listened to the quietness, straining to hear any sound of car motor laboring on the hills. I heard only the birds and the sound of wind. 
I drove back out, and I did not head back the way I had come. A car seen going and returning was more likely to be remembered on a country road than a car that went on through. In about three miles I came to a crossroads. I turned north. I thought the road was paralleling the main highway. But in five miles it joined the main highway, coming into it at a shallow angle. I took the next secondary road that turned right. I was closer to the city. Soon, as I had hoped and expected, I came to a place where a lot of trash had been dumped. I put the rolled rug in with the bed springs and broken scooters and kicked some cans over it. By the time I passed the motel, heading toward the city, I was surprised to find that it was only quarter after one. I ate at a small restaurant on Delaware Street. When I left, I met Mrs. Pat Rorick on the sidewalk. She had an armful of bundles. She smiled and said, "'Hello, Mr. Howard.' "'Did you remember anything, Mrs. Rorick?' "'I don't know if this is any use to you, but I did remember one little thing. It was a skit the eighth grade did, and Timmy was in it. It was based on Cinderella. I can't remember the girl who played the part, but I remember how funny it sounded, the way it was written, with Timmy calling the girl Cindy. It probably doesn't mean anything.' "'It might.' Thanks. I'm glad I met you. I was wondering whether to call you about anything that sounds so stupid. I've got to run. There comes my bus. I'll drive you home. No, don't bother. I convinced her I had nothing to do. We got into the car. She had her packages piled on her lap. I wondered how she'd feel if she'd known about my last passenger. How should I go about finding out who that girl was? Gee, I don't know. It was a long time ago. I don't know if anybody would remember. The eighth-grade homeroom teacher was Miss Major. I had her, too, later. She was real cute. I think she wrote that skit they did. I don't know what happened to her. I think she got married and moved away. They might know at the school. It's John L. Davis School on Holly Street near the bridge. End of Chapter 6